All right, we have officially made it. We are now in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I know many of you look forward to this time of the year. Kids look forward to time away from school and towards presents and gifts. Adults look forward to time away from work and time together with family and friends. As a church, this is a time in the year in which we reflect upon the birth the incarnation of Christ. It's this significant moment in human history in which is why we come to church this morning. So this is our first week in our Advent series. This series will lead right up until the week of Christmas. And this is also a good time for me to remind you of our Christmas Eve service here at Orlando Grace Church at 5 p.m. We invite you and your families to come worship with us if you're in town. So, since this is our first week in our Advent series, it would be good for me to share what this word Advent means. The word simply means an arrival or an appearing or coming into place. So, in the church, historically, the word Advent has had a double meaning. The first meaning is the incarnation, the birth of Christ. And the second meaning is a looking forward to to Christ's second coming, which is called the second advent. And in the passage that we'll be looking at in today, Paul talks about two Adams. And we will see the results from the first advent and what that means for us today. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, you'll notice that Paul talks about these two Adams. We read about the first Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Paul, in one of his other letters, writes about this second Adam. The first Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The Bible describes the entire human race as a story of two Adams. You have to understand the first Adam to understand the second. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, to chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 12 to 21. You may remain seated while I read these verses. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes when I meet someone new for the first time, one of the questions that's asked of me is, where are you from? And depending on my mood, I have a few prepared responses in my pocket. One of my responses is by saying, I was born in New York, but I was raised in Florida. And then I see uh, their facial expression that that answer is unsatisfactory. If they're bold enough, they'll say, no, 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 I mean, where are you from? Ah, now I understand your question. You're not asking what my place of birth is. You're asking what my background is. And so the answer to that question is, my parents are from Bolivia, so I'm Bolivian. My point in sharing that is that you and I have parents. We didn't have a choice as to which family we were born in. When my wife Emily and I take our daughter Jane to the pediatrician's office, we are her representatives. We represent her. And when the nurse calls Jane's name, we respond for her. And as a rookie young parent, I think it's funny that they call Jane's name because she can't respond for herself yet. Emily and I are the ones who sign the documents in the office for her. We are her representatives, whether she likes it or not. And I'm pretty sure that Jane would not sign off on getting her first year shots if the decision was left up to her. The whole Bible can be summed up by either being represented by one of two men, Adam or Christ. And representation is maybe not a category that you're, oftenly, you're often actively thinking about in your life, but we can see that there are enormous impacts all around us. For example, for some of you in your jobs, you have uh, your supervisor who represents you and your ideas to the executive team or to the executive board. In a legal setting, you have an attorney who represents the client, and sometimes there's serious stakes at line. For those who follow sports, we know that the impact that a captain can make by making a decision on a coin toss. And the idea of representation is also all throughout the Old Testament. We see this in the story of David and Goliath. David represents Israel. Where, when no one stood up to the plate, David did. He represented Israel when he defeated Goliath. All while 
Israel stood terrified on the sidelines. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage by asking two main questions. The first question is, what are the results from the first Adam? And the second question is, what are the results from the second Adam? And so I think that will help us keep the big picture in the forefront as we look at this passage. So first, the main point, the first point, what are the results from the first Adam? Let's do that by seeing what his actions are, starting with verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man. Verse 15, one man's trespass. Verse 16, one man's sin. Verse 17, one man's trespass. Verse 18, one trespass. Verse 19, one man's disobedience. Paul is purposefully being repetitive here. This is no typo. This is no error. He's driving the point home that what really affects your life, it's this one man, this one man's disobedience. One man's disobedience has affected the entire universe. And Paul is stressing that Adam's sin impacted everyone. Notice how verse 12 ends. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we all sinned in him. This is, that, this is maybe an area where our defensive spirits may rise up and object and say, wait, wait, how can I be held responsible for something I had no part in? But Paul does not address this question. And that's probably due to it not being a question that would have occurred to him. When God created Adam, he did not create him as an isolated individual, but as a representative head of all mankind. And calling Adam our representative, God is saying that he knew what Adam chose is what each one of us would have chosen had we been given the choice. And Paul is also taking us back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam was given dominion over the earth. God had appointed him as king with tasks to perform. And there was one law he had to obey. He could not eat of the tree from the knowledge of good and evil. And when Satan showed up on the scene, Satan questioned God's order. He did this by questioning God's goodness, God's truth, and God's beauty. And when Adam and Eve took of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they did not stumble into it. They did not unknowingly commit it. They, they were not tricked into it either. Eve did not convince Adam into sin, but they both willfully went against God's command. It's also important to point out that the fall was cosmic in its extent, meaning its scope, that it affected everything in the entire universe. This means every disease, every natural disaster, every painful struggle with cancer, every war, every divorce, and even more significantly, every sinner who stands condemned before God, this can all be traced back to what we have from the choice of Adam in the garden. This was the result of this one man's disobedience. It, it brought disaster and chaos into the world. And there's something for us to learn from what Paul is writing about. 
he is saying not to underestimate the seriousness of sin. It could be easy to brush off Adam's sin and say, well, if I was in his position or if I had been given that opportunity, I wouldn't have done it. And friends, I think in, it's in those moments that we realize how easy it is to see the sins of others than our own. In one of our Equipping Hour classes, we're currently walking through the book of Judges to Second Samuel. And one of the things that continues to strike me as we watch Israel throughout their journey is the many times they don't consult God before this decision or that decision. In moments where it seems the most obvious, it seems the most clear for them to involve God in this decision, they don't. It seems like they've almost forgotten that God exists or that he's even there. And I think, about, I think about my life and I see ways in which I do the same thing. How I often don't consult God in my prayer life before this decision or that decision. And it's humbling to me in those moments. I don't know if it rings true for your life, but it does for me. I show myself no different from Adam. Now let's look at what Adam's sin resulted in. Adam's sin had a result. It had a consequence. It wasn't just now that Adam was now judged when he had disobeyed. There were serious implications for what he did. His disobedience led to all condemnation for all who Adam represents. And Adam represents all humanity. We touched a bit on this last week in last week's sermon. In theological language, this is described as a federal relationship. Whatever is true of your federal head becomes true of you. You reap the benefits and rewards of that person. Adam is the federal head for us all when we are born into this world. He represents us, and that's why we have phrases like in Adam or in Christ. And I have to stop here because I know that some of you are starting to take steps towards the checkout line or the self-service checkout line, or the express checkout line. And I want to ask you to hang on with me as we explore what Paul is saying here in this passage. Let's look at parts of verses here, starting with verse 16. One trespass brought condemnation. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And there's, here's an important word that Paul is using here. It's this word condemnation. And what is condemnation? It's simply to declare a person to be unrighteous, to declare a person to be guilty. And that is what we have if we are in Adam. You can think about it in this way. The opposite of condemnation is justification. That means to be declared righteous. And that's what we have if we are in Christ. So how does condemnation connect to me? How am I declared unrighteous? Well, the Bible talks about it in this way. Sin was imputed to humanity. That means it was credited to the account of or charged to the account of. Adam's sin impacted, it was imputed to your account. When he disobeyed, we disobeyed in him. And he was acting for us all. 
For example, you can think about it in this way. When someone gets married, you inherit that person's credit card debt, car debt, any other type of debt, that becomes credited to your account. Or if the person has financial savings, that in some ways becomes credited to your account now. Now let's turn to what the implications are for those actions that we have from Adam. The results of condemnation is found in verse 14. Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. You may be thinking right now, well, that's strange, Paul. You've been talking about Adam and Jesus, and now Moses kind of is here in the picture. What Paul is doing is he's stating the long history of sin. That sin was in the world before the law. And it points to the dominance of death as the irrefutable proof of sin. After the fall account in Genesis chapter 3, what do we have in the next chapter? In Genesis chapter 4, we read of the story of Cain and Abel. It did not take long for sin to run its course. And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we had a sermon on the story of Cain and Abel. I encourage you to go back and to listen to it if you haven't already. So what does this all mean? Why is Paul talking about this? When Adam sinned, all generations were condemned. Let's look at parts of verses here, starting with verse 12. Death spread to all men, verse 14. Death reigned, verse 15. Many died through the one man's trespass, verse 17. Death reigned through the one man. The result of condemnation is that death spread to all men and all women. It's not that Adam introduced a virus that called sin that his descendants catch and they too sin and die. Rather, is that we actually sinned and we died when he died. Paul is saying that all mankind were there acting in and with Adam. The result of those, the result of that is death. Death exists because of sin. And you and I can think of death as being the inevitable natural course of life. It's natural ending. But the Bible doesn't talk about it in that way. It's, exa- it's, it's actually the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And thankfully, it's not always going to be that way either. Death is the result of one man's disobedience. You and I come to realize that painfully when we are face-to-face with someone with a death situation, whether it's a family member or friend. We grieve death, or there's, there's grief at death because we were not made for it. We were created in the image of God to have life and have it abundantly. Recently, I was listening to a podcast where a pastor was being interviewed. And one of the questions that was asked of him was about his kids and his grandkids. He shared how he loves to spend time with his grandkids and how he enjoys you know, looking at photos of them that, that are sent to him. 
But there's one thing that struck me about his response. He said that sometimes late at night, he's thinking about some of the future milestones that they will have. And the reality sinks in that he won't be around for that. This pastor is painfully aware of the consequences he faces because of the fall. He went on to share how even the prospect of eternity is insufficient as an aid in those moments. Or thinking in terms of our culture, you can think about the TV ad or magazine that has a 70-year-old man who is as fit as fit can be. It's shaming to us all, but it doesn't last. It won't. There is no Fitbit. There is no Apple Watch. There is no Peloton bike that can prevent the sting of death. The sting of death is still here, and it goes back to the garden, back to Adam. And death reigns if you are still in Adam. How do we escape this curse? Let's move to the second point of this message. Let's look at what the results are from the second Adam. Let's do that by seeing what his actions are. Let's look at parts of verses here, starting with verse 18. One act of righteousness. Verse 19, one man's obedience. And let's pause here and dwell on how important it was that Christ was obedient his entire life. With difficult circumstances and with difficult people, he remained obedient. And he was perfectly righteous. One of the dramatic moments that comes to mind is the temptation account in the wilderness. It's the showdown between Satan and Jesus. The devil was seeking to destroy Jesus the way he destroyed the first Adam. But the second Adam is different. He resisted the devil. The second Adam did what the first Adam should have done. The first Adam should have said, hear the word of the Lord. You shall not eat of that tree. That's the word of the Lord. Jesus rebukes the devil with the word of power and he departs. This is the parallel that Paul wants us to see in this passage. And stepping back now, we get to see the full picture here. Christ regained authority over creation that Adam lost. Adam was appointed as the first king of the earth to subdue it. Think about the conditions here. Adam was in a perfect environment. He was in the Garden of Eden with all abundance. Notice the contrast. Adam, with every reason to obey, he doesn't. Jesus in the wilderness with every opportunity to disobey and every cause on human level to do so still obeys. If you are in Christ, this is true of you as well. Think about it in this way. Adam represented us in the garden. In Adam, we suffer the lawyer's penalty. But in Christ, Christians have a lawyer who paid for theirs. 
And it's far more than a lawyer who pays for his client's bills. Christ is a representative who suffered his client's consequences. So how do we wrap our minds around this? How might we try to communicate to others of Christ's righteousness being given to someone else? Here's an illustration that I'm borrowing that I think communicates this in a helpful way. Picture yourself sitting at your family dining room table. And at the end of the meal, you ask for your family member's dirty and used napkin that they've been using throughout the entire meal. And to increase the visualization, let's say you had chicken wings on the menu that night. In exchange, you give your family member a valuable coin. In an exchange, you give something away to receive something in return. In this illustration, your family member gave the dirty and used napkin a worthless item in exchange for a coin, a valuable item. The dirty napkin represents our sin. And the valuable coin represents Christ's righteousness. When he died on the cross, he took our sins and he bore it on his place. This is the exchange that happens. Exchange for Jesus' perfect life. Life without sin if we repent and believe in Jesus. The mind-boggling thing is that Christ's obedience is not only applied or effective for one person but millions receive the benefits of Christ's obedience. So church, how does Christ's obedience change us? Listen to what the author of John wrote. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you are in Christ, how ought that to change the way you relate to one another? It's hard to love those who are different from you. It is. But recognize those differences as God-given opportunities to display God's love. The whole point of Christ's substitution was for us to display God's love. In a fallen world, love requires a long perspective. And if you don't have that long perspective, you will not be loving. But if you see what God is doing by putting this person and that person in your life, you will be able to do what he calls you to do. Now let's look at what Jesus' actions result in. Let's look at parts of verses here starting with verse 16. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 18, the one act of righteousness leads to justification. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus' obedience resulted in justification. The result of Christ's obedience is that when he looks at me, He doesn't see my sin, although there's plenty of it. He sees Christ's righteousness. We are clothed in and wrapped in Christ's righteousness. 
And it's on those grounds that we are accepted by him. We are not accepted by our works, but we are accepted by Christ's works. This is the principle of representation. Adam brings condemnation, but Christ brings justification. Let's look at the implications of what those actions are and what they lead to. Let's look at parts of verses here, starting with verse 18. Leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 17. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now the contrast is complete. Adam leads to death and eternal death and Christ leads to life, life in the here and now and life forever. Sin, Adam's sin required no great effort, but Christ's accomplishment is incredible to uh, bring a redeemed mankind to new creation. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul is not pointing to two equivalent levels of results from Adam and Jesus. It's not a comparative, it's a superlative There is no comparison. Sin is outweighed by the grace that God gives. So we live in a super, we live in the presence of super abundance of grace that is far greater than the depths of our disobedience. And it's this grace that's found in the incarnation of Christ. Friends, if you're struggling here this morning, hear that there is more grace in Christ then there is sin in you. You can never outsin the grace of Christ. Throughout this passage, Paul has used words like much more, grace, gift, abound, to emphasize how wonderful God's gift of salvation is, provided freely at Christ's expense. What Paul is saying is that We have more, 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 more in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, that God's grace is greater than our sin. And this is why it ties into why Advent is important for us as Christians. Without Christ coming into this world, without him taking on human flesh and living the life we could have never lived and dying the death that we deserved, there would have been no hope of being saved from our sins. Our state in Adam. We, we, would, we would stand condemned in Adam without Christ. Luke tells us about this in his gospel. The angel said to them, that is Joseph and Mary, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Without Christ coming to this world, there would be no hope of being rescued from our sins. But Christ's obedience hides all my transgressions from view. Every single person who ever lived or will live will face this question. You're either represented by one of two men. It's either Adam or Christ. It's either Adam that's going to condemn you and bring death and eternal death, 
or Christ, the second Adam, that's going to bring, represent you and bring righteousness and life. So now we have the opportunity before us this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper in light of what we've been looking at in Paul's letter to the Romans. From the manger to the cross, we see the results of the one who came from Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. It's Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that gives us hope. Jesus gives spiritual life immediately and physical life ultimately, and his resurrection guarantees both. Let's pray. Father, we praise your great name, O God. There is none like you in the universe, no one as gracious, no one as loving. We praise you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this world, that by putting our faith in him, we could have eternal life, that we could be counted righteous because of his obedience, credited to our account. We pray now as we prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper, we ask for your help in seeing our sins and our folly and our great need for you. May we as a church rejoice of your faithfulness, kindness, and love. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.